may not have known that was even a book in the Bible. It is, Micah. It's in the Old Testament, Minor Prophet, uh, after many other books. There is Ezekiel, that's a big one. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and then Micah. Now, why would we turn to Micah? Well, because in Matthew chapter 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among, least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. And there the teachers of God's law are pointing back to this promise in Micah. Well, what is this promise all about? What is going on? And they even ask a question, why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, it's all going back to this promise, and you could go back to other promises as well, but 700 years before Christ came. And from this passage in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we'll see really three things. If you have a bulletin, you'll see this outline on the back. First, the need. And then we're going to see that there's a promise in response to the need, and then we're going to see the reign, because we will see that this child isn't just going to be any old child. He will be the king of kings. So with that, let's read Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Well, this portion of Micah begins with a very odd statement. It says, muster your troops, or gather together your troops, O daughter. And they have to gather their troops together because there's a siege laid against them. That's a little bit of a head scratcher. What in the world does a siege have to do with Christmas? Well, a siege is when a foreign army will come and encircle a city so that no food, water, supplies, messages, even people can get in and out. Rather than the cobra-like quick and bloody conflict in the battlefield, a siege is the slow boa constrictor-like choking of hope and suffocation of despair. It's like in the summer of 1941, Nazi troops came and attacked Leningrad, except Leningrad was not that important of a city, so once they had mostly defeated it, Hitler left one army and the rest of the armies went on. So then over the next 900 days, the people of Leningrad eked out an existence with barely any food and water. 
the lack of food led to such weakness that survivors tell of only being able to walk a hundred steps and then having to sit to regain their strength. They tell of eating pets and other horrible atrocities. By the end of the siege, over a million citizens and 300,000 soldiers had died. Sieges are horrible things. And here, Jerusalem is going under a siege from the Assyrian army. Ten years prior, in 722 B.C., Assyria had conquered Samaria, Israel to the north. They had just, if you read in 2 Kings 18, conquered the fortified cities of Judah, and now they come to lay siege to Jerusalem itself. Hezekiah, the king at that time, had sent gold to the king of Assyria to try to ward this off, and yet he still came. And I'm going to read from 2 Kings 18, 19-27. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read, because here the general for the Assyrian lord, the emperor, comes, and his name is the Rabshaka, and it says, And the Rabshaka said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses, if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Elikim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? The situation in Jerusalem is dire. And what does Micah even say? Micah 5.1 says right after this, With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. He's saying, look, you are under siege. You are under attack. There is this great need. And the situation looks desperate. It looks hopeless. What in the world is going on? What can they do? Where can they turn? And this may seem an odd place to begin, a service on Christmas, but to fully understand the rejoicing and the celebration of Christ's coming, you have to first understand the desperate need for him to come. And perhaps you're not having the depths of despair or discouragement that comes from having our city under siege. However, Maybe you are dealing with discouragement and frustration in your life. You're outside, you keep hearing, tis the season to be jolly, but inside you feel anything but jolly. You put on 
the smile, you go to all the holiday celebrations, when you show up to the office or work, you look friendly, but then once the party's over, you get back in the car and you might even find it hard to turn the key. You find it hard to get through the task that you're supposed to do, and if you feel anything, it's not the joy of the season, it's blah. I just don't feel anything. And the holiday seasons can make it worse. Because perhaps there's the missing family member. Or there's issues you're dealing with in your life. Or you know how much you spent on the presents and you're going to get that credit card bill. Or there's rebellious family members and there's this angst and there's this discouragement in your life. And this can actually be worse when you put on the fake smile. We need to be honest with brothers and sisters in Christ and share what's going on. Letting them know of the hollowness the despair you might feel at the moment. But it is in this type of situation that the child is promised, in the midst of despair. So where do you turn where everything looks bleak and there seems to be no hope? We've been praying as a church over the last few weeks, a couple months now, for a friend of ours whose daughter has cancer. And this last week, they had some significant challenges because they went through the next round of chemotherapy but some of the medication they used to keep nausea down led to some really bizarre ugly and sinfully defiant behavior you know both the parents were feeling very hopeless very discouraged and just at a loss how do we get our child back under control due to this medication and her mother wrote about it she writes i've always had control issues In my adult years, as a mother of four, the presentation now manifests itself in seemingly positive ways. Sure, there are plenty of things I can't stop from happening, like Lucy's cancer, but I can manipulate some circumstances, enough for me to feel like I have some form of control. However, I've given too much homage to my own self-contributions, and they felt like power in my heart. In this situation with Lucy, I sat and felt exactly how completely out of control I was. In that moment, the Lord allowed me to start internalizing the truth I profess, that he has control, and I need to trust him. Full stop. She continues, I'm still fleshing out the ways my control issues have wrongly influenced me. Subconsciously, I have believed that I could adopt God's divine attributes. I have magnified other areas of my importance and ability. I felt closer to being omniscient, closer to being omnipotent, closer to being transcendent. I see how trying to pursue characteristics I can never achieve burns up my resources and often leads me farther away from those characteristics that are godly and possible. Knowing who God is and who I am not frees me to receive wonderful traits from the Spirit, including love, joy, peace, and self-control. I can't manufacture these fruits in my own heart out of my own resources. God produces them in me. You know, whether you're mother dealing with a child going through cancer or whatever your circumstance is, that's what's going on here in Micah. They're in a situation where they are in desperate need and it is completely out of their control. And in that moment, Micah comes and he speaks. And he makes this great promise in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Now put yourself back in, your, in their context. Ten years before, your relatives to the north have been completely defeated, taken into exile by this country. Now, within the last few months, this country has come in and conquered the surrounding towns. And now here they are at your doorstep. What would you be feeling? You're probably living in fear. What's going to happen? How long can we live this out? You're probably in despair. Nothing's going to work. You're probably even angry. This isn't fair. What have we done? And yet then, in response to all this, Micah essentially says, but don't worry. A baby is going to be born in Bethlehem. I'm sorry, can you, can you rewind the great prophecy you're going to give us? We here have almost 200,000 soldiers surrounding our city. Everyone we know has been defeated by this army, and you tell us the good news is a baby is going to be born in another town. Where's the hope in that? We need someone to come defeat the army today. I mean, even if this baby was great, what could it do? It would need like at least 16 years. And yet here, there's this wonderful promise. Now, how is this a wonderful promise? Because it's tying into all of God's great promises. And it's showing that they're beginning to come to fulfillment. We see that first with the phrase, you will come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're too little is basically referring to basically insignificant. You know, this promised child is not going to come from a palace. It's not going to come from a major city, but the podunk, seemingly worthless, not even named in the book of Joshua city of Bethlehem. It's like the Texas cities of Brodus, Pecan Gap, and Salino. That's right, you never heard of them. Where is Bethlehem? We don't know what this town is. No one would expect anything from a town they've never heard of before. You expect Jerusalem, D.C., Austin. That's where stuff happens. That's where the power resides in the state and the country. Not in Bethlehem or Broadus. And yet God works through the small and insignificant so that we will realize that success salvation it never comes from anything we could ever do or manufacture or plan it always comes through god and his power you god how did he defeat egypt when the children of israel were slaves through supernatural plagues and when they're stuck how does he lead them across the red sea with an outstretched arm when they come to the first city in Palestine, the promised land, where do they have to do? Walk around the city. So that when it's over, no one could say, well, you know, did you see how I walked around the city? I mean, I, I walked really well. I had some good walking. No one could, Moses couldn't say, well, did you see how well I had my hands up? That really, that, that was how I got the Red Sea. Everything is pointing, you are not insignificant because otherwise he wouldn't come for us. But you are not the point. God is the point. It is his power. He reaches down to those who are in need. You don't have to be great. You don't have to be powerful. You don't have to be wealthy to receive God's 
gift. In fact, those can all be hindrances to receiving from God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame what is wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast. In the Lord. You know, this is even what we see when the child comes. Because what do the angels say to the shepherds on the field? They don't say, Glory to Mary, what a wonderful mother. Glory to Joseph, who didn't divorce her. They say, Glory to God in the highest. The child is all about bringing glory to God. So everything about it is going to point to human, earthly insignificance as it points to his worth, his coming and doing all of this. And this is God's plan throughout. Even David, when King David, who's from Bethlehem, and we'll see the importance of that in a minute, when they came, when Samuel came to anoint him as king, where was he? Well, his dad didn't even bring him in. He sees all of David's brothers and then goes, well, is this it? Because God has not told me this the one. Oh yeah, we got this other, the youngest. He's out taking care of the sheep. The insignificant one. And yet that's who God chooses. And here he's showing that this promised one in Micah is really one who is going to be like David. And we see that in three ways. First, like David, this child comes from Bethlehem. Second, notice what it says. One who is to be ruler in Israel. Ruler like David was ruler. And then verse 4, we see this talk of the child shepherding his flock. This language mirrors that of Psalm 78, 70 through 71. There it says, God chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. David was, became a shepherd, the king of Israel, and so this one will do. And thus, as the people in the city of Jerusalem, are hearing this promise from Micah, they would be hearing, look, this is not just any old baby. This is the baby that was promised. The baby that's going to come in the line of David. The promise that came in 2 Samuel 7, 12-16, where God told David, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so as their nation, as their kingdom, as their city is in chaos, God promises at that time that he is going to send the promised one, the king, to come and deliver them. And then Micah adds, what seems like a twist, because notice at the end of verse 2, he says, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And this is answering the question 
that was raised from the promise to David. How can David have a kingdom that's going to go on forever? Because David eventually dies, and then Solomon dies, and each son, grandson, great-grandson is going to die. The only way David's kingdom can last forever is if the king can last forever. He has to be divine, or as Micah says, one who is from ancient of days. You know, Micah is saying, look, this king, David's son, is also going to be God's son. He's no mere man, but God becoming man. This is what we call the incarnation. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. That's what Micah is prophesying about. There's this great promise that God himself is going to rule and reign as king. And that comes from Bethlehem. And then this truth it becomes so ingrained in the people of Israel, people of Judah, that then later, even when Jesus comes, when they're, they're debating, they're going, well, who is this man? Who is Jesus? They even say in John chapter 7, well, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was born? They knew, look, this is where he's going to come. And Jesus being born in Bethlehem shows us many things, but one thing we need to realize is the deep providence of God that leads to hope. Remember, where are Mary and Joseph when Jesus is conceived? He's there in Nazareth. And yet God orchestrated world events to lead to a census, to lead them to go down to Bethlehem. In your job, sometimes decisions are made from up top that just make you scratch your head. Just going, what? What what in the world is this going to do that helps at all? Or sometimes decisions are made in D.C. or at Downing Street or in Austin or the Roman Empire or Jerusalem. And you're scratching your head going, what in the world is going on? This place is out of control. And yet we see all the way down to when an emperor declares a census, God has timed it out perfectly so that his son will be born in the right city, so that a prophecy 700 years before will be fulfilled. There's nothing going on in your life that God is not orchestrating. He is bringing his plan to fruition. So even in the chaos of life, In the moments that tempt us to despair, realize his plan is moving forward. His promise comes in the midst of the bleakest of circumstances. And yet God works in what we would say is humanly unworkable. He brings death from life. He brings joy out of despair. He brings hope to the hopeless. And how? by sending the promised child. Thus, we have to see to look beyond what we can see. God has given us five wonderful senses, and we should use them, and we should use our ability for rational thought. However, sometimes we have to also live by faith. And by that I don't mean in contradiction to rationality or contradiction to your senses, but the God who can't be seen let himself be seen in his son who was incarnate. And now we live in faith. 
of those who have seen and who've testified of that son who came in the flesh. You know, we don't see him now, but people did. And we trust their testimony. We trust his word that there will be hope. Not irrational leaps in the dark, but knowing that Jesus of Nazareth lived and died and that in him there can be hope because he is the promised child. But that really leads to, well, what is this promised child going to do? And Micah then tells us in verses 3 through 5, he's going to talk of his reign. And in verse 3, Micah talks about when he is born, when the woman has had labor, the rest of the brothers will return, and he shall stand, verse 4, and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. You may have been intrigued if you're a real student of the Old Testament. Well, what's going on? Because didn't King Hezekiah defeat this army? Didn't they pray and then God miraculously killed 185,000? Well, yes. As with many times in the Old Testament, God promises destruction will come unless you repent. And so Hezekiah repents, as with Nineveh. And so this disaster was turned aside. And yet then future kings of Judah will reject God. And that will lead also to their ultimate destruction and demise in 586 B.C. And then, talks about in verse 3, after this, the child will come. And as we saw verse 4, the first thing about the reign of this king is he will shepherd the people in the strength of the Lord. In other words, he'll be a leader who both protects and cares about his people. Isaiah 40 says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He's not going to be a weak ruler who has advisors who are manipulating and controlling him to do their desires. He's not going to be an arrogant, overly strong ruler who doesn't care about the weak. It's all about him. No, he will be a shepherd, both strong and humble. And this is really the type of ruler that we long for. Someone who's strong but compassionate, just but fair, and ultimately willing to die as the shepherd. This is where this language goes because Jesus will say in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know, the ancient of days must be born of a woman, must be of the seed of David, take on human flesh so that he might die in our place. You might be familiar with C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in this book, there's this land called Narnia, in which there's this evil witch who's done the worst of all things, made it always winter and never Christmas. And so there in this land, they're living in this constant curse. And so the ruler of the land, he calls these four children, these four children to come, and yet one of them rebels and is a traitor and joins the witch secretly. 
And then when the ruler of the land sends his son, Aslan, to come, he gathers them together to fight this witch. And then the witch says, but the son, his name is Edmund, was a traitor, and he belongs to me. And then an interesting thing happens, because Aslan, the son who came, doesn't deny this, but he goes and talks to the witch. And the witch then lets the son go free. And if you've read the book, you know why. Because that night, Aslan went and gave himself in the place of Edmund. And then the witch and her servants kill Aslan. He was a substitute. He came to die for his people. He took the place of rebels. And that's what Jesus does in a much greater way. He comes as the shepherd of his sheep, but he dies for his sheep. But he could not have done that if he did not take on flesh and blood. And so, though you might be in despair like the people of Judah, you should look and realize that you have a ruler who, though omnipotent, also has nail-pierced hands because he loves and cares for you. And so trust in him. There is hope in him. But there's two other things about his reign that he tells us in Micah. Second, his reign will bring security for he will be great to the ends of the earth, it tells us at the end of verse 4. And this child isn't going to just be a king who comes and delivers Jerusalem and then he'll have a little kingdom off the Mediterranean Sea. This king will rule throughout the entire earth. It's an interesting fact. There's many holidays that we celebrate in the U.S., but as far as I'm aware of, only one is celebrated across the globe. That's Christmas. We celebrate July 4th, but obviously other countries don't celebrate that. We celebrate other days, but it's not celebrated around the globe like Christmas. Well, why? Well, because Jesus came to conquer, to rule the whole earth. And Micah is showing us that one day all the ends of the earth will be his. And this will be not only in every place, but one day it will be every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what was read for us earlier from Isaiah 9. Isaiah was a contemporary of Micah, and there we read of his kingdom that will be established from this time forth and forevermore. All other kings, all other kingdoms, they've come and gone. One day, years from now, there will be students sitting in a classroom saying to their teachers, why do we have to learn of this obscure place called the United States of America? Who cares? Is this going to be on the test anyways? No one will know anything about us. We'll be nothing. And yet there's one kingdom that will last forever and ever. You may be familiar with Handel's Messiah, a great Christmas orchestra piece, has music that can be sung with it, often sung at this time of year. And at the end, as the Bass is going and everyone's singing, He shall reign forever and ever. Everyone stands up. I don't know if you've ever been at an orchestra when they do this. Well, the story, maybe urban legend, maybe not, but the story is that when it was first played in London, when they got to this final ending, this crescendo of praising the one who will reign forever and ever, King George II stood up. Well, if the king stands up, so does everyone else. And so now, if you go and hear this anywhere in the world today, as it ends, everyone stands. 
everyone in this orchestra hall stands because this one who will reign forever and ever, he deserves our respect. Yeah, we will all die. Even King George II, if he did it, would have realized, look, I'm going to come and go just like all the other kings of England. But there is one king who will reign forever and ever. And that is what Micah is prophesying. But there's a third promise of his reign. First, he'll shepherd his people. Third, it'll last forever. Second, it'll last forever. And third, it will bring peace. The beginning of verse 5. But notice it says, and he shall be their peace. Not just that there is peace. He is their peace. And the word for peace is the Hebrew word shalom, which is much more than subjective feelings of at ease or oneness. It's of everything being the way it should be, complete wholeness in all of life. And this one, this king, this child will bring peace. Again, what do the angels announce when they come to the shepherds? Glory to God on the highest and upon earth, peace. The promise of peace, of restoration. But the king reigns in peace because as we've seen, the king will be defeated. He will allow himself to be put to death that he might defeat sin, death, and the devil. Micah even talks about this at the end of Micah, he says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain its anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Your sin it created a conflict between us and God. And because of that, there's now conflict also with us and nature. And even us, in this bad English, ourselves. But you, one day, this child that Micah is prophesying will restore the peace we had with God so that we'll walk and talk with Him. That we will no longer cringe but look forward to His coming. He'll restore peace with nature so they're not fighting against the ground and fighting against our decaying bodies there'll be no more famines no more earthquakes floods and fires no more shipwrecks crumbling foundations deteriorating cars no more allergies migraines or surgeries because of this child there'll be peace also with our nations peace within our own country peace in our community our churches even our own homes no more bickering. No more seeking the best for ourselves in hostility. There will be peace and a love for one another because there has been brought back wholeness through this child. My cousin's daughter has a horrible disability where she was progressing normally in life and then around age two or three she got Rett syndrome and then started deteriorating so that now, even though she's almost 10 years old, can, is basically unable to walk talk and function normally well tragically this last week as they went to go go to santa claus and enjoy those events two little girls came within six inches of her and with disgust in their face commented what's wrong with her and then just walked away and my cousin then went on and as they were going trying to get up front her daughter was agitated and so she, 
As she could communicate, she went through the normal list. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Do you need to be readjusted in your chair? And finally, she asked the question she dreaded to ask is, is it what those girls said? And her daughter emphatically said, yes. And her heart just broke. And we live in such an ugly world where bodies start attacking themselves, where people will walk up to someone randomly and say, what's wrong with you? And yet, here in Micah, there's this prophecy that one is coming who's going to restore everything. So there's no more disease. There's no more sickness. And best of all, you're restored to God. Because as the curse of sin was taken away at the cross, the curse that then goes out horizontally is removed. And yet, while this great promise looms out in the future for the people of Jerusalem, they're still currently stuck in their hopeless situation. Yet, this promise should make them long and have eager expectation of this child coming and fulfilling all these promises. It's a somewhat sad irony, because at this time of year, many people will say things like, Well, I just don't feel like celebrating Christmas. You know, life has just been really hard this year. And yet Christmas, the promise of the child is for those for whom life has been hard. That would be like saying, I don't feel like going to the hospital. I just feel too sick. That's why you go to the hospital. You are sick. You celebrate Christmas not because life has been great. And Christmas is the cherry on the top because you had a good life and you know what? Christmas takes you over the top. Christmas is for those in despair. Christmas is for those who don't have life together and they go, I don't have it together. But there was one who, from their perspective, is going to come and we're longing for him or from our perspective, who has come and he's begun to bring restoration and we long for him to come again. And so we sing, we end together, come thou long-expected Jesus. You know, may we sing, we want him to come, come thou long-expected Jesus. No longer do we have to look back, only we can look forward and sing with joy that Christ has come in the manger. He lived, he died, he conquered sin and death. He rose and he will come again. And so we sing out, come thou long-expected Jesus, come to set thy people free. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do long for this world to be restored. Sadly, Lord, we look to so many other things, thinking they will be the solution, the fix. And yet, it was your simple promise. It was your costly promise that your son would come in Bethlehem. He would be the restoration that we need. And so, Lord, we end singing together, longing for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.